This is the Northwestern Medicine Pod Talk. Here's Melanie Cole. Low back pain can be debilitating and can keep you from taking part in the activities that you enjoy. When back pain begins to interfere with your daily life, it might be time to see a physician to assess your pain. My guest today is Dr. Michael Walsh. He's a board-certified neurosurgeon and a member of the faculty of Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine in the Department of Neurosurgery. Welcome to the show, Dr. Walsh. What are some of the most common causes of back pain as we see so much back pain in the country today that keeps people from work and from activities? What do you see as some of the most common causes? Well, what I see as common causes is often different than what the average American will see. As a surgeon, generally, I see patients with back pain uh, when it involves uh, either compression of the neural elements like the nerve roots or the spinal cord, or if it involves instability. However, I would say that most com- most causes of back pain don't involve uh, those kinds of dangerous conditions, and actually, uh, the majority of back pain is generally more from, uh, say, like musculoskeletal causes. Um, unfortunately, our American lifestyles aren't always uh, the ideal for spine health, and as as we uh, tend to age and uh, things tend to deteriorate, like the joints and the discs in our back, a lot of times those things have nerve endings and can, can lead to, to conditions like back pain. Um, frequently, things like muscle spasm, pulled muscles, um, those, are, those are more of the common causes that the average American will see as, as back pain. What's the gold standard for diagnosis? What do you do when someone comes to you and they've got low back pain or they've got neck pain or something? How do you figure out what's going on? Well, a lot of times figuring out what what's going on takes it starts with uh, what we refer to as taking a good history and, and physical exam. Um, as Again, as a neurosurgeon, um, I, I tend to see a little bit of a different subset of patients with uh, neck pain and back pain, as, as most often uh, patients with back pain will, will generally improve on their own or they'll be diagnosed by their primary care physicians, who, again, will take a good history looking, watching out for uh, red flags um, such as, again, pain, numbness, or weakness going into the arms or legs or, or that's associated with a fever or a history of cancer or things like that, although most patients with back or neck pain aren't going to have those conditions. Um, beyond that, a lot of times a primary care doctor will then order a set of uh, just simple x-rays just to make sure that the alignment is okay and that there aren't any signs of any, any warning conditions. However, once back pain gets to the point where it's either uh, not responding to the conservative measures like rest or gentle exercise or stretching or over-the-counter anti-inflammatories, a lot of times we'll then move on to an MRI, which will give us a really good sense of what's going on with the spinal cord and the nerve roots. Once you've determined what's going on, and before we talk about surgical options and some of the myths around back pain and surgery, what is the normal first line of defense as far as medications or physical therapy? What do you want patients and listeners to know about what they should try before they start discussing surgical options? 
Sure, that, that, that's a great question, and I, I, I think that everybody has a little bit of a different philosophy. Uh, my my own personal bias as a physician is is that I, I tend to encourage patients to to start with the the most natural uh, remedies. Um, you know, pe- people a lot of times think that medications are going to cure their back pain or even surgery, um, but even medications have their side effects. Now, obviously, they have their place. Um, I you know, I I think that. Things like over-the-counter anti-inflammatories are, are a reasonable starting place, um, especially for relatively mild pain. Um, but a lot of times, just again, getting to the point where you listen to your body. Um, a lot of times, if your if your back is hurting or your neck is hurting, a, a lot most most of the pain we experience in general is is actually what we call physiologic, or it's it's our body's way of telling us what we should and shouldn't be doing. And if you've if you pulled a muscle in your back or your neck. A lot of times, just giving it a chance to rest is is probably a good place to start. And a lot of times, people can alternate between either heating or cooling, and then kind of gently get back getting back into an exercise routine. Um, if if the just kind of resting or stretching out uh, the muscles doesn't do the trick, a lot of times starting out with things like anti-inflammatories uh, will help. Sometimes physicians will will prescribe stronger anti-inflammatories, um, especially with our our, our current uh, climate of having issues with overuse of of narcotic pain medications. We have to be really careful with with those stronger medications because number one, uh, they they obviously have a tendency to be addictive. Number two. Um, they're not necessarily doing anything to treat the underlying cause and can actually mask some of that physiologic pain and lead to even more injury down the road. Dr. Walsh, before surgery becomes that discussion, do you look to things like spinal cord stimulation or nerve blocks or epidural injections? Where do those fit into this picture? Sure. So when I see patients, again, most of the time they, they will have been diagnosed with a condition that at least could potentially be compressing one of the nerve roots or causing a little bit of instability. I, I think back pain is listed in, 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 in is one of the top reasons for time off of work or hospital visits, and, and there are several reasons for that. The you know the it's I, a lot of times I compare um, our bodies. Uh, with my patients to that old song about the knee bones connected to the thigh bone, the thigh bones connected to the hip bone, the hip bones connected to the spine bone. And since everything connects back to the spinal column, every movement that we make hinges around the spine. And so even if you have a relatively minor injury of the spine, trying to heal from that is, is, is I kind of joke sometimes that it's like trying to do auto repairs on a car that's still driving down the highway. If you hurt your arm or your wrist or your finger, you can put it in a cast or a splint or completely rest it, but it's very difficult to rest your spinal column. And since we only age in one direction, our spinal columns are particularly prone to things like inflammation and, and degeneration. And what makes it even more tricky is that we have ten or you know we have probably at least ten or twenty different structures that can cause pain, and it's very difficult to know exactly which of those structures are causing the pain. And so when, when I'm evaluating a patient for, for treatment of a spinal condition, again, I'm really looking for either compression of the nerves or evidence of, of instability. And that can give me some, some hints as to what, what, we might be, um, what we might be targeting uh, with, with our treatments. So as far as back surgery, there are a lot of myths going around out there. People are afraid of it. Make them not afraid. Tell them what you're looking for when you decide to do this and how this discussion between physician and patient takes place. 
Sure. So I, I think a certain amount of, of, of fear is, is probably a, a normal reaction when talking about spine surgery. I think you know, almost everybody's heard the, heard of these horror stories about people that will end up having one surgery that then leads to another and to another, and then people end up happy, happy, unhappy because they end up wishing that they had never even started with with surgery. And I think a big part of the reason for that is because that the is because there are a lot of myths surrounding spine surgery. I, I think a lot there's a lot of um, un, there's there's a lot of press out there surrounding spine surgery. It's you don't have to watch TV very long before you start seeing commercials for 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 surgeries. Um, and and on one hand, the I think that the the marketing machine behind spine surgery makes it sound like surgery is a quick fix. But on the other hand, I think what patients hear are are different from that. Uh, my own philosophy, which again, everybody has a little bit of a different philosophy about spine surgery, but when it comes to to surgery on the spinal column, for some of the same reasons that I mentioned before about how every movement that we make centers on the spinal column and it's very difficult to 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 heal from surgery um, as well as heal from just regular injuries, but also because we only age in one direction and our spines are particularly prone to wearing out. I, I tend to keep in mind that for the for the vast majority of cases, there are really only two things that we can accomplish with spine surgery. Uh, we can decompress, and what that basically means is, is that if there is a structure that's compressing the spinal cord or one of the nerve roots, we can remove that compression by either drilling off overgrown bone or removing overgrown ligaments, or if there's a disc herniation, we can remove some of those fragments to get the pressure off. But if you think about what we do with those procedures, we're actually removing some of the supporting structures that can then lead to instability. Now, that instability leads to the second thing we can accomplish with spine surgery, and that's, that's stabilization. Uh, but in our current state of, of spine surgery, the, the, the standard ways that we stabilize the spinal column are with things like screws and rods and bone graft, uh, in which case we basically fuse the bones of the spine together. Now, that's a really good operation if you need it, but every every surgery, by definition, is, is in some ways trading one set of problems for a different set of problems because once you stabilize what, what, what the spine was used to having as a motion segment, it can actually alter the biomechanics of how our spines move, and it can actually put more stress on the levels above and below and start the clock ticking on them wearing out. Now, again, you know, even though you're trading one set of problems for a different set of problems, sometimes that's a good and necessary trade. But generally, as long as we kind of stick to our principles of of realizing that the primary goal of surgery is to relieve pressure around the spinal cord and the nerves and keep us able to walk and move our arms and legs or stabilizing something that's unstable, we, we go into this, these surgeries with a realistic set of expectations that it's not necessarily going to cure all of your pain for the rest of your life, but it can be the first step towards kind of a, a larger healing process. Give us your best advice on questions that you would like patients to ask you, a neurosurgeon, when they are to the point where surgery is the next option, what do you want them to know? Wrap it up with what questions you would like them to ask you. Sure. So I, I think that the, the patients that I see having the best outcomes are the ones who, are, who come in with, with, a, with a realization that a lot of times the situation that they're in with their spines, they didn't get, to, get into overnight. And they have to realize that, they're not, that there's really no magic treatment that's going to get them out of it overnight. And I think that you know, some of the questions they, that would be good to ask is, 
how much of this is because of the, the aging process of the spine versus how much of this is because there's a, a significant problem, and then asking, you know, what, what can I actually expect to experience after surgery, and even most importantly, what can I then do in the future to prevent having more problems and uh, as, as I move forward? Because as I joke with my patients, that you know, most likely they'll never be as young and healthy as they are at the time I see them. And so, if they can start thinking about what kind of lifestyle changes can they can do, because a lot of times it involves things like weight loss and core strengthening and changing up their exercise and lifestyle programs. Those are the kinds of things that I think are going to learn lead to the longest lasting uh, positive effects after surgery. And keeping a healthy back, what do you tell people every day? Well, I think it begins with just a, a, a healthy lifestyle. Uh, make sure that you're using proper lifting technique. Make sure that you, you maintain an, an, you know, as much of a normal body weight as you can. Um, exercising is incredibly important. Eating, eating a healthy diet. I think a lot of times we tend to neglect even our sleep hygiene. Make sure that you're sleeping on a good mattress that's well supported and make sure you're getting enough sleep. And I think that there's also a psychological and even a spiritual component. And I think just maintaining a healthy lifestyle in general is one of the best things you can do. Thank you so much, Dr. Walsh, for coming on with us today and sharing your expertise with this issue of back pain that so many people suffer from. Thanks again for joining us. You're listening to Northwestern Medicine Pod Talk. For more information on the latest advances in medicine or to book an appointment with a neurosurgeon, please visit nm.org slash podcasts. That's nm.org slash podcasts. I'm Melanie Cole. Thanks so much for listening.